Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The crew knew that it was uh, time to go to war. It was important to me to put this all in perspective for these wonderful young men and women, 5,000 of, of whom were aboard that ship. I reminded them that last time that America actually went to war to, to defend against an attack on our homeland was exactly 60 years prior when a treacherous enemy conducted a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And during that attack, a different enterprise, the World War II enterprise, was actually at sea on her way home, like we were, and was ultimately the first response to Japanese aggression in the Pacific by attacking the Marshall Islands. And I told them that ever since then that, you know, whenever America's gone to war, it's been to protect freedom and our vital interests and those of our allies. But we've not had to defend our own homeland for a long time. But on September 11th, our enterprise was on our way home. And tonight, our enterprise was going to, again, be an integral part of our nation's response. This is the fourth in a series of episodes we are producing to commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. In this series, we are interviewing a number of people about where they were, what they saw, and what they did on 9-11. Our guest today is Sandy Winnefeld, who would rise to be our nation's ninth vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but who on 9-11 was the commander of the aircraft carrier USS Enterprise. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is a special series of episodes of Intelligence Matters, Remembering 9-11. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Sandy, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. Uh, you've been a guest a couple times before. You've been a guest host several times. You're a regular, so it's great to have you back. 
Well, it's always great to be with you, Michael, and this is a terrific podcast that I very much enjoy listening to, so it's a pleasure to be on it. Thanks, Sandy. Um, Okay, 9-11, Sandy, you were the commander of the USS Enterprise. Uh, First question, can you give us a sense of what the commander of an aircraft carrier does, uh, what a normal day uh, in the life of a commander of an aircraft carrier is? What's that like? Sure. Well, the the captain of an aircraft carrier has a very busy, very exhilarating life because you have to be trained to do several different things at once. And the first is you have to manage, uh, in my case, it was eight nuclear propulsion plants and and newer carriers, it's only two. And you have to get that right to make sure that we, we operate those very complex devices correctly. At the same time, you're navigating a very large ship around on the surface of the ocean and in sea lanes trying to to do that safely with other traffic that's out there and the like. And then you're also flying very high performance fixed wing aircraft on and off the flight deck of an aircraft carrier, which takes a lot of uh, skill and you have to understand how that all works. So you're doing those three things at the same time you're managing an organization of around 5,000 people. Uh, So as I said, it's exhilarating, it's busy. Uh, uh, I wouldn't have traded that job for anything. And just to be clear, Sandy, on 9-11, you were the commander of the Enterprise itself, um, not of the entire combat or, or, or carrier battle group, correct? That's correct. Uh, then Rear Admiral John Morgan was my strike group commander at the time. Strike group. Okay, got it. So, Sandy, when the sun rose on the morning of 9-11, where was Enterprise? Why were you there? And do you remember how many hours ahead of Washington you were that day? Yes, Michael, we were at the end of a six-month deployment. The first half of that was in the Mediterranean, and the second half was in the Arabian Gulf. We were enforcing the no-fly zone over Iraq and interdicting Iraqi oil smugglers. And at this, on 911, uh, we were on our way home. Uh, we had just left the Gulf, and we were going back to Norfolk, Virginia. Because we were transiting via South Africa for the first ever port visit there by a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, we were going really, really fast. Uh, six hours ahead of Washington, D.C. time. So when the first uh, aircraft hit the first Trade Center Tower, it was uh, 8.45-ish East Coast time and six hours later uh, at our time. And when you were on the deployment, did did you actually conduct combat operations? We did. We uh, conducted a large number of enforcement operations, essentially normally taking out Iraqi surface-to-air missile sites that were violating the no-fly zone that we had agreed upon after the first Gulf War. Our air crews and our flight deck were very seasoned. We were at the height of our ability and readiness uh, as we were on our way home. And that 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 uh, turn from being on station, being um, involved in combat to, to heading home must be a special feeling for sailors. It is. You're very much looking forward to getting back to your families, maybe with a Liberty Port visit on the way home. Uh, You you don't necessarily let down your guard, but you feel a little bit more relaxed because you are now free and clear of a combat zone, heading back uh, after a very successful deployment and looking forward to being reunited with your families. Sandy, was there anything special about that day on 9-11 before you got the news? You know, we were just driving as fast as we could down the east coast of Oman on a gorgeous day in the North Arabian Sea. Uh, I was in my sea cabin working on something, stepping out on the bridge every now and then, but it seemed like a perfectly normal day uh, going very fast across to the surface of the ocean on an aircraft carrier. 
so walk us through Sandy when you heard uh, how you heard and what you heard of the attack. Sure. A little before three o'clock in the afternoon, which was around nine o'clock on the East Coast, uh, my safety safety officer called me um, and he told me to turn on the TV because the World Trade Center was on fire. Uh, I did so, of course, immediately. Couldn't believe my eyes at the spectacular sight at the top of the first tower being on on fire. You may remember there was a lot of confusion among the news media uh, who had just come on the line uh, over what might have happened and whether it was an accident or some sort of terrorist incident. And just as I was wondering uh, whether it might have been a terrorist act, I saw the second airliner hit the other tower on television. Uh, It was a chilling, stunning moment for me. It was immediately clear to me that the world had suddenly changed. And it was only later that I found out that I actually watched someone who was once in a fighter squadron that I commanded, a guy named Brian Sweeney, uh, actually on one of those planes, Flight 175. Uh, when it hit the tower. And uh, he had just moments before left a heartbreaking voice message for his wife that things were not going very well. And you can, you can find that message on the internet. Uh, so a very, very chilling moment for me and for anybody on the crew who was watching at the time. And these were, these were live, this was live TV you were watching? This was live uh, TV, uh, a gut punch. Um, we realized that this probably came from a terrorist, came from bin Laden in Afghanistan. And we pretty quickly figured out we weren't going home anytime soon. And Sandy, what was the, what was the initial reaction of your sailors and your airmen? Uh, they were shocked. It, it was uh, shell shock, I think is, is uh, a good description for anger that, you know, how could this have happened? Nobody was thinking, you know, how could this have happened and it's going to keep me from getting home on time? Nobody was thinking that. They were all angry that our nation had been attacked on our own soil and uh, to, a, to a person, they were ready to do something about it. And, and I've heard you say before that, that here they were, right, on, on the front lines of the wars the, the U.S. was fighting at that point. And they're the ones who are usually at risk and here their, their families were the ones that were at risk. Yeah, it was the first time in my life uh, at sea uh, in the Navy that uh, I actually considered my family to be more at risk than myself. You know, at the time, there were all the rumors running around about, oh, they're going to poison the water or where is the next attack going to come? And here we were out in the middle of the ocean. And to be sure, there were, there were ways that a, a terrorist could probably find us and do something. But it was a very eerie feeling uh, to know that our families might be actually in more danger than we were. So what did you do at that point? Well, we immediately slowed down, realizing we probably were not going to be going to South Africa after all. Uh, There was a lot of discussion among uh, senior people in the theater, including myself, my strike group commander, and the fleet commander in Bahrain. And it wasn't long before we were uh, essentially directed to turn north towards the coast of Pakistan uh, to be ready for combat operations the next morning, if need be. There's a... a common simile uh, metaphor, Sandy, about the difficulty of turning an aircraft carrier. Uh, So how do you do that? How long does it take? Well, it all depends on how fast you're going. Uh, The faster you're going, the harder you put the rudder over, the more the ship heals, which can be very dangerous for people on the flight deck and running elevators and the like. So if you're going, you know, 30 plus knots, it can take a good 15 minutes to turn that, uh, that carrier around. It might it takes less time at a, at a slower speed, but uh, it, it can be a pretty interesting operation getting that big hunk of metal turned around. How long did it take you to get 
to where you were ordered to go to be on station and and where were you exactly off the coast of Pakistan? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, as I mentioned, we were supposed to be off the pa- Pakistan by the next morning, nine twelve. And according to my navigator, uh, getting there meant that we had to steam at least 25 knots to be there on time. But because we needed to run some aircraft elevators to get our airplanes ready for combat, we could only go 20 knots. Uh, because if you, again, if you turn the aircraft carrier at too high of a speed, you can dig one of those aircraft elevators into the water and hurt a lot of people, lose airplanes and the like. So as a normal place for a leader, people bring you a problem and expect you to solve it. So I told them, we're going to go 30 knots. Uh, and what we, we would do is then when we had the aircraft ready positioned on elevators, we would slow down to 20 knots, move the elevators very quickly, and then speed back up to 30 knots, which seems like a very simple answer right now. But at the time, it was you know sort of two factions on the ship, each of whom needed to get a job done, and were bringing the problem to me to solve. And when we got... You average your 25. <laughs> and, we, and, and boy, we made it. And when we got there, uh, one of the things I think is, is touching or, or patriotic or what have you is, you know, we put aircraft carriers in boxes, usually 50 by 50 miles or so, just to keep, keep us in a safe place, keep us clear of the shipping lanes. And so everybody knows where we're going to be, at least on our side. And we named those different boxes in the North Arabian Sea that day for what had happened the previous day. Uh, one box was named Pentagon. Another World Trade Center West, World Trade Center East, New York Police Department, New York Fire Department, and Pennsylvania. And we moved among those different boxes uh, that were named for the tragedy that had hit our nation the day prior. Sandy, when you got there, Pakistan still had not made a decision of where it was going to uh, put its loyalties in this fight. So how concerning was that? Well, it was very concerning. We were watching that and listening to that very carefully because, uh, for one thing, uh, there were two Pakistani submarines underway at the time. And we didn't know, as you point out, whether they were with us or against us. And if there's one thing that an aircraft carrier captain hates more than anything else, it's a submarine. So we were taking great uh, caution uh, to stay clear of those two submarines. We knew where they were. Uh, but it was a, a little strange uh, not knowing what was coming at our country next and and from whom it was coming. And we didn't know whether Pakistan was part of that or not. When did you, Sandy, learn about the president's decision to go to war, that diplomacy had failed? And I think we all knew it would fail. Um, and when did you learn that the enterprise would take part in the first combat operations? Well, the first combat operations took place on the 7th of October, and we found out about three days before that, that uh, diplomacy was not working. The strike planning had proceeded, of course. Uh, there was a very good plan uh, that was put together and that we were going to be part of it uh, uh, the first evening of the war, uh, probably flying all night long uh, doing strikes into Afghanistan. So it was about three days prior to the first strikes, which, of course, caused us to shut down our internet which we would do randomly anyway, because people on the other end, when they see the internet go down, think something's about to happen. So we had already prepared the sort of the, the information space with this, uh, but we had to shut down the internet once we found out that we were going to be um, uh, involved in the first strikes of the war. So you see in the movies a lot, captains of ships get orders. How do you get orders in real life? How do they come in? Several different ways. One, 
uh, you might get a secure phone call that says, hey, we're, we're about to send you this order. Here's what's going to happen. And here's a, the rough contours of what that's going to be like. But in general, it's a uh, message traffic that is, it looks a lot like an email, but it's sent via a different circuit and it, it will arrive and it will show you uh, sort of an execute order for what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, some of those details are actually for, for aircraft are put together in something that's called an air tasking order that's produced by a, a coalition air operations center that is a very much an internet product, a secure internet product that is sent over uh, that, that literally outlines every single sortie, every single weapon, every single target, all of the times, all of the tankers and everything. Uh, the Air Force uh, has created that process and it's a very robust process for uh, outlining to an entire Air Force uh, what exactly is going to happen on a given day. Sandy, what was what was the mood and feeling of the crew as you went to battle that night? Well, the crew knew that it was uh, time to go to war. They had prepared uh, for many, many months for this sort of thing. And, and certainly the, the previous 30 days, to um, it, they felt exact revenge on a, an enemy of the United States. It was important to me uh, to put this all in perspective uh, for these wonderful young men and women, 5,000 of, of whom were aboard that ship. So I gave them a, a, a speech that I had worked on uh, uh, for a day or so. And essentially, I, I reminded them that last time that America actually went to war to defend against an attack on our homeland was exactly 60 years prior when a treacherous enemy conducted a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And during that attack, a different enterprise, the World War II enterprise, was actually at sea on her way home, like we were, and was ultimately the first response to Japanese aggression in the Pacific uh, by attacking the Marshall Islands. And I told them that ever since then that, you know, whenever America's gone to war, it's been to protect freedom and our vital interests and those of our allies. But we've not had to defend our own homeland for a long time. But on September 11th, our enterprise was on our way home. And tonight, our enterprise was going to, again, be an integral part of our nation's response. And that just like 1941, uh, this war was a little more personal than merely defending our vital interests. Here, we were defending our families. And then I described to them a little bit about what we were doing that night and, and told them that, you know, who knows how long we're going to be at this. Don't think of yourself as a hero. Uh, the real heroes are the 17 sailors who died aboard USS Cole, the 42 sailors and Navy civilians and all the other innocent victims at the Pentagon. They were the firefighters and policemen and thousands of other innocent people who died at the World Trade Center. And of course, those who died trying to thwart hijackers in Pennsylvania. And uh, just told them, you know, you've done a tremendous job preparing for this. You're ready. Uh, and I asked them to say a prayer for our air crews in our country and, and continue to concentrate very hard on what they were doing. Uh, and uh, don't let anything distract you from what's a very difficult and dangerous business that we have in naval aviation. Uh, they responded, they were going to do fine whether I spoke to them or not, but they responded very well. Uh, and that may be one of the more important things that I think I've ever written in my life. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Sandy Winnefeld. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. 
the way car buying should be. What was the first day of combat ops like? Uh, it was uh, obviously something we were, had prepared very hard for. Uh, we spent uh, all day long preparing our airplanes. I remember uh, in the mid-afternoon, uh, one of our logistics airplanes flew out with uh, the media aboard, news media. There were probably 15 or so of them, many of whom had were not defense experts who had been pressed into service uh, on short notice to, to report on the war. And when they climbed out of the uh, airplane, sort of blinking their eyes in the North Arabian Sea sunlight, uh, what they saw but didn't really process was that we were loading bombs as fast as we possibly could. And many people were out there with chalk uh, writing uh, things on those bombs, little messages to Saddam Hussein, I'm sorry, Osama bin Laden. Uh, And we took them inside, uh, fed them, uh, gave them a tour around the ship. And then later on uh, that evening, when we started launching strikes is when we first told them that this was the first night of the war. We were uh, south of Pakistan in very light winds, uh, and we were concerned about the fuel for our strike aircraft. So we really charged north as close as we could get uh, reasonably to Pakistan to launch those airplanes so that we could give them every good opportunity to get home safely. Uh, And we flew all night long. Our first strikes were against uh, caves where we thought Osama bin Laden might be hiding, terrorist camps, uh, several different buildings. I remember we hit a surface-to-air missile site, and the video showed a a missile squirting off uh, in the wrong direction, of course, after it was hit by a bomb. So it was a very busy evening uh, for a first night of the war for our airway. And can you, Sandy, describe a a typical combat mission for an aircraft from mission planning all the way to the planes returning to the carrier – one of the things that people might not know is that you started your career in the Navy as a, as a fighter pilot. Sure. Uh, when you get ready to go launch on a strike mission, uh, first question is, do I have a designated target or are they just sending me out there in case they find a target while I'm there? The first night of the war, we had very clearly uh, designated targets that we were going to hit that first night. So you, you see the uh, air tasking order, you see where your targets are, you see where all the tankers are going to be if you have tankers. And then you, so you plan your route, you do all of what we call weaponeering to make sure that the bomb is correctly uh, configured to hit its target and delivered in the proper parameters and the like. And then it's time to go flying. The, the uh, aircraft maintainers have worked very hard to get the airplanes ready and load the weapons on them. And you start up your airplane, you get all the systems checked out and ready to go. You taxi to the catapult and at just the right time, you get this wonderful acceleration, zero to 150 in about three seconds. And in this case, off you go into the pitch black darkness uh, and you might rendezvous with a wingman, uh, fly inland uh, to the coast. You might meet up with uh, a, an air refueling tanker, which is a very exciting evolution in the middle of the night and get some gas to make sure that you can get to the target and back. And then it's a matter of flying the, the route that you've so carefully planned into the target, uh, delivering your weapon, trying to get uh, a video of of. Uh, the bomb damage assessment, and then getting yourself back to the ship, and then doing one of the most difficult things that I think a human can do, and that is landing an airplane on an aircraft carrier in the middle of a pitch black night after you've already been fairly tired from uh, this mission that you've just completed. Uh, so a lot of adrenaline. You're always very happy to be back on the deck. So, so Sandy, how do you land um, in the pitch black in the middle of the night on an aircraft carrier? So you, it's a, a very scripted pattern that you fly. 
you set yourself up uh, in a stack, what we call the Marshall stack, uh, about 20 miles behind the ship. And at a very specified uh, time that you're told over the radio, you do what they call push and you, you uh, descend towards the aircraft carrier uh, on a prescribed pathway at around uh, 12 miles. You'll uh, lower your landing gear and your flaps and you'll get in the tail hook, of course, and you'll get your aircraft all configured to land. And you, you drive in at uh, uh, 1,200 feet towards the carrier. And around three miles behind the ship is when you start your final glide slope descent. And, and that's when you're really starting to concentrate very hard. It's a very much a right brain activity in which you, you have to get your glide slope, your airspeed, and the lineup left and right on the, on the carrier absolutely perfect because you're literally trying to land that airplane uh, on a tennis court uh, in the middle of the, of the dark. And that last uh, three quarters of a mile, when you have to come off your instruments and actually look outside, uh, you're, you have zero depth perception and you only have what visual cues the ship is able to present to you in order to get yourself onto that flight deck. And it's just, it's so highly uh, concentrated uh, there's an interesting thing that that short-term memory is on the the right side of your brain, and I always found that when I flew a good landing, I couldn't remember what I did. Uh, it's actually on the left side of your brain. I couldn't remember what I did because I was using the right side of my brain so much. Uh, it's, it's a very intense experience. So your 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 airmen are flying through Pakistan to get to Afghanistan and their targets. Did the Pakistanis stay away? They absolutely stayed away. Uh, I think they were watching us very carefully, but they didn't want to get anywhere near us uh, in in the process of of any of these flights for years uh, flying into Afghanistan. I think they knew that they needed to to cooperate. Um, uh, that message was very very clearly sent to them. How long did Enterprise stay on station? How long was Enterprise in the fight? So we had uh, I don't know four other carriers eventually show up and join us on station which was, was plenty of firepower at that point in the war for what we needed to get done. So we were on station for around 30 days. We used up all of our weapons. Uh, and because we were at the very end of our deployment, we were the first uh, ship to come home from that uh, combat situation. And in fact, we were really the first U.S. military unit to come home to the United States after the war started. And how'd you come home? Which What route? We, uh, we actually came back through the Suez, which we uh, were happy not to be doing initially, but we came through the Suez, uh, got back to Norfolk, Virginia on a November, a late November day. We had uh, 20,000 people on the pier waiting for us. It was incredible. Felt like you were on the field in a college football game. Uh, you know, the nation was looking for something to celebrate at that point, and we were the first people back. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we, we were treated special. We didn't feel special, but we were treated special as the first people to come home from combat to a nation that definitely needed some, some good news. And in the first weeks we did, we did GB one and GB two in the first couple of weeks. Uh, we had a concert by Garth Brooks, uh, on our flight deck, uh, a, a couple of weeks after we got back and he did a fantastic job. Uh, incredible performer. And then a week or so after that, uh, president George Bush, uh, came and gave a speech. And this is not the mission accomplished speech that people talk about. This was a very, you know, a, a different speech early in the war where he was rallying the nation. Uh, and it was a real privilege to be able to host him. And what does that, what does that mean to a, to a sailor and airman to have the commander in chief visit? Uh, it really means a lot when uh, the president, that the, as you point out, the commander in chief comes to your unit. Uh, and even though there's probably a political purpose there, 
there's a national political purpose as well as a personal political purpose. It's not lost on these young men and women that they must have done something very important uh, if the president was standing on their flight deck uh, talking to the nation about what was going on. So, Sandy, one more one more question, and then I want to get to some big picture stuff. But one more question about 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 enterprise. I understand that enterprise did some things that no carrier had ever done before. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, we were fully committed to this fight, uh, and we were we were in very high intensity flight operations, and we didn't want to take a day off, you know, that sort of thing. But we have, to, you know, you run out of gas, you run out of weapons, you have to keep the logistics uh, flowing. And it was our uh, understanding that there really had not yet been a carrier that had done a long side underway replenishment in which you're 140 feet away from a big tanker taking fuel and groceries and you know, literally over high lines uh, bet- connected between the two ships. At the same time, we were doing vertical replenishment using helicopters, moving ammunition back and forth from a different ship to, to our ship. At the exact same time, we were literally launching and recovering aircraft in combat operations. And that's an incredibly complex thing to manage, you know, alongside replenishment, helicopter replenishment, and combat flight operations off your deck. And I was just incredibly proud of a very, very accomplished and proficient crew at that point in their deployment that they were able to do that sort of thing. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So Sandy, some big picture stuff. So this was this was twenty years ago. So with with twenty years of hindsight, how do you think about how do you think about nine eleven? How do you think about the role that enterprise played? Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, Michael, I have a lot of emotions and thoughts uh, looking back on this whole thing. Uh, uh, pretty far back as well. If you think about it, the the sort of flawed message that we gave. Saddam Hussein, 31 years ago, before he invaded Kuwait, you know, that intra-Arab quarrels were not a matter of interest to the United States. You can point to that as a root cause for that whole tragedy. Uh, We could have nipped that whole thing in the bud. Um, So that was one thing. I also think that we may have made an enormous mistake, as noble and well-intended as it was, in trying to convert Afghanistan into a Jeffersonian democracy with equal rights for all and everything that goes along with it, under the theory that if we did so, terrorists could never take root there again. Uh, And while we had to go after those who perpetrated this horrible, horrible act, uh, I think it was enormous hubris uh, to think that we could do any more than that. Uh, you know, as the Israelis would label it, you know, mow the lawn. Uh, but for the most part, you know, it was people who had never experienced war that, that were the ones who committed us to this. And it wasn't necessarily worth the cost to keep that going as long as we have. Uh, and at some point, we had to make uh, a very painful decision to end this. You know, neither President Trump nor President Biden wanted to see it continue. But I will also say it's incredibly difficult to watch what's happening now given the sacrifices so many Americans and people from allied nations and even you know in Afghanistan have made in the last 20 years. It's very difficult to watch. 
I mean, it's really, you know, you mentioned President Trump and President Biden. President Obama didn't want to be there either. I mean, he he wanted us to tell him that it was time to go. So it's been three presidents in a row. And, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it was time. You know, it's kind of remarkable that that by the end of November of 2001, early December 2001, we basically had accomplished our mission. We had killed or captured or driven out of Afghanistan um, pretty much all of Al-Qaeda. Um, the, the Taliban was on the run, and um, you know that was what we went there to do. Um, and yet 20 years later, we find ourselves leaving Afghanistan um, essentially in defeat. It's, it's really remarkable. Uh, you know, a few months of victory and then 19 years of a real struggle that ends in a not so happy way. Well, you know, I, th I do think uh, it is to our great credit as a nation that we believe uh, in what Colin Powell used to call the pottery barn rules, right? Where if you go in there and you break it, you've got to fix it. Uh, we want countries to succeed. We want countries to have equal rights. We want them to have democracy and those sorts of things. And what we sometimes forget is that there are, there are cultures, there are uh, places in the world that just aren't ready for that. And yes, there was a was a, a valid interest in not allowing a terrorist to ever attack the United States again from Afghanistan, but there were other ways of accomplishing that objective. But I, I, it's not lost on me that is it's our noble nature as Americans that make us want to make other people better as well as making ourselves better. Sandy, the Taliban have now taken over the country, as you know. We struggled mightily to get not only Americans out of the country, but many Afghans who worked for the United States the last 20 years, many of them didn't get out. Um, and as of this taping, we've had one horrendous terrorist attack that killed 13 Americans. Uh, would love your thoughts uh, on, on our final days, um, America's final days in Afghanistan. Well, Michael, when, when this, uh, episode airs, those final days will probably be over. So it's a little tough to, to predict in advance. But I will say that uh, in spite of this horrendous attack, and by the way, uh, my heart's, heart reaches out to the, the wonderful families of the soldiers, sailor, and Marines uh, who we lost. Absolutely. Um, you know, we've got to continue this mission. And I would say, you know, just try to tell a Marine that his or her mission uh, will be curtailed due to an attack like this. Uh, I wouldn't want to hold that conversation. Uh, so there's a lot we have left to do. Uh, first, we have to, to finish the job of getting the Americans out that we can get out, along with eligible Afghans and any other uh, allies and partners. And that's going to be, you know, people coming to the airport. It's going to be people being brought to the airport. And our JSOC folks on the ground are very good at that sort of thing. And also, there are other ways out of Afghanistan that we can facilitate. Uh, but right. that's that's job number one. Job number two is keeping this force safe as best we can. And, you know, there are several different potential attack vectors that an ISIS-K could pursue. They may be a cowardly enemy, but they're also a very clever enemy. So we have to stay ahead of that as best we can. We're well protected in many ways, but in other ways, we're vulnerable. It's just the nature of the beast of leaving a country the way we're leaving it. And I think we'll adjust to what happened uh, and hopefully we'll be able to defend ourselves. And then we've got to go after the people who, who perpetrated this, N not just out of revenge, but out of the notion of not allowing them to do it again. 
And that's going to be very challenging. I know the president's determined to do that, but you have to have intel to do that. This podcast is named Intelligence Matters, and it really matters in this particular situation. And it's going to be a challenge. But it's not to say it can't be done. And, you know, we will pursue these people uh, until the cows come home. But that uh, that is something that we have to do. And then we have to recognize there are more challenges to come in the near term and the long term. In the near term, of course, there could be more attacks, as I just mentioned. But, you know, imagine just those last few hours of getting um, the last troops off of that airfield safely. Now, we're hearing today that the Taliban is going to take over uh, the airport tonight. Uh, Trust and the Taliban are not words that I like to use in the same sentence. But there's going to be a certain level of, of, of mutual interest there where the Taliban has got to uh, do their part, if possible, as we do our part to get those last people out of there uh, safely. And then it's all about the future of Afghanistan. You know, the, the Taliban are, are going to come rapidly to discover that taking over a country may, may be a lot easier, as hard as it was for them, than actually governing a country. And we're going to have to see the trajectory of the Taliban to see whether there is total isolation for them or whether there is some way that the international community can do something for that country on the humanitarian side to help these poor Afghan people who are going to have to struggle with the aftermath of this conflict. Sandy, thank you. Thank you very much for your thoughts and thanks for joining us. Uh, It's been a terrific episode. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Michael. Thank you so much. That was Sandy Winnefeld, and this was a special episode of Intelligence Matters, Remembering 9-11. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.